Welcome to the All Things Work podcast from the Society for Human Resource Management. I'm your host, Tony Lee, Head of Content here at SHRM. Thank you so much for joining us. All Things Work is an audio adventure where we talk with thought leaders and tastemakers to bring you an insider's perspective on all things work. In today's episode, we'll be talking about resilience as an individual employee, a manager, or a leader. Resilience is the ability to bounce back from challenges and emerge from crises in a better position than before. The pandemic and its disruption of day-to-day business underscores the importance of resilience in the world of work. Many companies have been forced to completely reimagine and re-engineer their processes for getting work done. And research shows that organizations that emphasize flexibility and resilience recover from unexpected shocks faster and more effectively than their competitors. We also know that workplace resilience is a quality that can be strengthened by company leadership and their approach to engaging and communicating with employees, since more resilient employees lead to more resilient organizations. Joining me to discuss how to develop workplace resilience is Michael Nathanson. Michael's the chairman and CEO of The Colony Group, a Boston-based, nationally recognized independent wealth advisory and business management firm. Michael's a highly recognized leader in the wealth management industry who has shown great resilience in his personal life. As CEO of The Colony Group, Michael is dedicated to bringing meaning and joy to the lives of his team members and clients by fostering a company culture that values lifelong learning, cultivates innovation, and provides opportunities to live lives full of passion, purpose, and resilience. Michael also is host of the podcast, Seeking the Extraordinary, where guests share their stories of how personal resilience helped them overcome adversity and achieve extraordinary outcomes. Michael, we're very excited to have you here on All Things Work. Welcome. Well, it's great to be here, and I'm very excited as well. Terrific. Well, thank you. Well, Let's start by helping the audience understand kind of where you're coming from. Why don't you share your your story? Sure. I I often like to quote one of my favorite philosophers when I talk a little bit about my own personal story. And uh, and I think one of the great philosophers of our time is none other than Forrest Gump. And Forrest Gump, uh, you may know from the great movie and book, uh, once said, that he said, and I'm going to try to use a, a, a somewhat of a Southern accent. I don't do it very well, but he said something like, I don't know if we each have a destiny, but if we're all just floating around accidental, like on a breeze, but I, I think maybe it's both. And as I tell my story, um, I'm mindful that to some extent, I feel like I have been floating around a little bit accidental, like on a breeze, but I'm good with that. I feel like I follow the uh, what the universe tells me. So I was uh, born in a uh, you know, good home in uh, Framingham, Massachusetts. I would call it a you know sort of a middle class upbringing, and I wanted to to be a a lawyer. I did well and got into Harvard Law School. Um, it was uh, it was interesting. There was this guy who was super smart that talked all the time in my class, and he was Barack Obama. It turned out. And my class also had Neil Gorsuch, a former Supreme Court justice, and some other pretty cool people. And I did well in law school and uh, wanted to be a litigator. And uh, I got a call uh, two weeks before I was supposed to start. And they said that you're not going to be a litigator. You're going to be a tax lawyer because Vicki Summers, the wife of Larry Summers, had to move to D.C., because Clinton had just been elected and uh, I was now going to have to try something I didn't want to do. 
and that was a an early lesson for me in okay well I never wanted to be a tax lawyer but sure I'll try it and loved it and had a great career and I practiced law for 13 years I became a a partner at a great law firm which is now no, known as Wilmer Hale and I had a great job doing fantastic work uh, I, I had a great fam- I have a great family I have a wife and three children um, and we were living the dream, doing great things. And I was playing with my son one day, uh, who was five at the time. And he hit me in the chest as we were wrestling, just in a playful way. And I felt a sharp pain in my chest. And I put my hand down to feel where he had, he had hit me. And I realized I had a, a lump in my breast. I used to not talk about what I'm about to talk about because I felt very uncomfortable. But we'll get into that. I realized I had a, um, a lump. I was concerned that I had breast cancer, as men certainly are also vulnerable to breast cancer and need to be mindful of that. I went to see a breast surgeon. I had a mammogram, went through all of that, didn't have breast cancer, thank God, but something was wrong with me. And in the year 2000, when I was um, in my early 30s, I was ultimately diagnosed with an inoperable three centimeter brain tumor behind my uh, where my optic nerves cross. And uh, I remember sitting with my wife when I was getting the news. That's what caused the, you know, the issue in my, in my breast and caused a lot of other issues for me, it turns out. I was sitting with my wife across from the doctor, and uh, it was a surreal experience. Um, I cried. I didn't know what it meant, and I was, I was terrified. I had a young family, and it was, a, it was a shock. Everything in my life had been going really well. Yeah, so um, I learned more about it. Um, it was not cancer. Most brain tumors, it turns out, are not cancer. There's no such thing in my mind as a truly benign brain tumor, though, because all brain tumors are dangerous, as was this one. It was inoperable because it was wrapped around my carotid artery and um, just in a very sensitive space. And fortunately, there is a medication that I take to this day that prevents it from growing uh, or keeps it somewhat stable but it's there and I get lots of MRIs and see lots of doctors, but I'm okay. And ultimately that changed my life. And um, a few years later, I decided to leave my law firm and go try my hand at something else. Uh, It was a great law firm, did great work, still is a great law firm. And a lot of those people there are still my dear friends, but I needed something a little bit more balanced in my life and to do something a little bit different. And I wanted to, to do something that I felt had a more direct impact on individuals. Um, I also got interested in uh, the brain tumor cause. I became part of the brain tumor community, became part of the, uh, the board of directors, ultimately became chairman of the board. And I served as chairman for almost six years. And um, I feel like it did great work there and helped that organization change the world. And um, we raised millions and millions of dollars and did all kinds of great research. I'm still involved as an emeritus member. It's still a great passion of mine. And um, I have since uh, repositioned myself uh, over and over. Never expected to be at a wealth management firm, just sort of found my way there. Never expected to be a, uh, a brain tumor patient, uh, brain tumor survivor. I used to have guilt about calling myself a survivor, but I, I now call myself a brain tumor survivor. And yeah, I've learned along the way uh, an awful lot of things. It's been quite a journey and um, I am where I am now and looking forward to future future directions that the, uh, that the um, 
the wind brings me as I float accidental like on a breeze. Yeah. Oh, Michael, thanks for sharing that that story. That's amazing. I mean, most people in that situation would would just crumble. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how you stayed optimistic, especially with a young family. What what kept you going then? Well, for one, I had to keep going. And, um, and, and you and I are talking about resilience and resilience. People think of resilience as being strong and I'm going to be strong and I'm going to take whatever comes my way. And the reality is that's not really what resilience is. Resilience is about being able to adapt to circumstances, to be, to be able to recover from, from bad things happening. And it was, it was hard for me. I spent the first uh, several weeks um, in bed because the medication that, that I take as it works on the tumor is extremely painful. And uh, I was basically in, in bed for, for weeks until the pain started to subside. But then I started to get perspective and I knew that the only way to go was forward and um, didn't want to feel bad for myself and wanted to, to do the best that I could. I felt like maybe there was a reason that I had a brain tumor. And I often say it's a, it's a cause that chose me. I didn't choose it, but it chose the wrong person if, if there was some sort of desire to keep brain tumors around because I'm a fighter. And I'm, I, I've done something about it and will continue to do something about it. One of my favorite philosophers outside Forrest Gump, <laughs> in all seriousness, is Lao Tzu, uh, the ancient Chinese philosopher. And Lao Tzu said that an unbending tree is easily broken. And that's the way I think we should be thinking about resilience. If you think about, about that tree and the wind, you know, if it's a really strong tree, well, that's great. It could easily crack in half because it's not able to, to bend. And, and for me, the way I've been able to deal with, with this and other setbacks in my life, I have a son with congenital heart disease as well, who's been through four open heart surgeries. And that's a different story. But all these things are about being able to, to accept it and, and to bend. And I'll tell you one other thing that's important as I answer that question I've thought a lot about Lao Tzu and, um, and, and about that saying, an unbending tree is easily broken. And I think there's a lot of wisdom, but I actually don't think, and, and far be it from me to challenge the, the great Lao Tzu, but I don't think he had the whole story. Because if you think about that same tree, even if it's flexible, if the wind is blowing hard, it's going to get ripped right out of the soil. And I actually have come to believe that it's about an unbending tree is, is easily broken but also, in order for that tree to truly survive, it's not only going to be bending and flexible, it's got to be held tight in the soil. And to me, the soil is our community. The soil are the people around us. And what I've realized over my life is that the people around me are what hold me down in a good way. They, they're, they're the roots. They're what keeps us together. And if we're really going to be resilient, we have to be flexible and we have to be interdependent with others and understand that we need others. And if we can accept them into our lives and accept our vulnerability, then and only then can we truly be resilient. Yeah, so nicely said. I have to share, I have a daughter who also was born with congenital heart disease, had three surgeries in her first six months. She's now 28 and the model of resilience and it's wonderful. Tony, I love to hear that. I'm so glad to hear that she's doing well. 
It's great to hear. No, thank you. I hope your son is doing well also. So let's pivot a little bit and talk about, you know, where all things work. So let's talk about applying the experience that you have had and both our children have had to the work world. And I just want to cite an interesting recent statistic from Deloitte that asked the C-suite, basically, to rank the most critical workforce trait for the successful future of their organization. And the largest group, 54%, said the number one trait was flexibility and adaptability. And that's really what resilience is, right? I mean, isn't this a trait that employers should be seeking and developing in their workforce? Undoubtedly. In fact, if they don't, I think that they need to get a good lesson in an economic Darwinism. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of the origin of species and, uh, and, and just the insight that Darwin had. What he talked about was the species that will thrive and survive are the ones that can adapt to changes in the environment. And others that cannot adapt will be naturally selected for extinction. And I think the same thing can be said for, for organizations. The organizations that are able to adapt to changes, often extremely adverse changes, such as we just saw during this, this most recent um, set of pandemics. Um, and I say set of pandemics because I'm referring not only to the, uh, the coronavirus pandemic, but also the, um, the social injustice. But these pandemics they are going to trigger this type of evolution because some organizations were unable to adapt, whether it's their fault or not. I don't put blame around around that. Um, And that's what happens. And so as we think about people, we have to be thinking about people that can help promote this kind of adaptability. I'm a big fan of of, uh, Martin Reeves. And Martin Reeves, who he works at BCG, he actually did a TED Talk on how to build an organization that will last for 100 years. The number of organizations that last for a century is a very, very small number. And what he thought about was, he actually thought about the human body. And he thought about the immune system and how amazing the immune system is. And what he realized is that there were certain traits six traits in the in the human immune system that organizations must have and they are redundancy diversity modularity prudence embeddedness and adaptability and again it's just this concept of being able to adapt you, you mentioned my my podcast seeking the extraordinary and uh, and i've been studying what it is about certain people It just makes them so extraordinary. And their ability to respond well to challenges is just, it's it's a common trait you see in all of these people. And their inclination to be optimistic. And I think that's another important thing about about optimism. You see, people who are are optimists, even in the the worst situations, these are people that are fueled with a can-do kind of energy that enables them to go places where others who lack that positive energy just can't go. Their optimism allows them to see past a difficult set of circumstances and enables them to, to continue their journeys and hopefully the journey of the organization when others would otherwise just stop. So I think as we think about people, and we focus on 
on hiring and retention and development of our people, I think these, these, these concepts of adaptability, this ability to continue to learn, to not hold to what we believe are the truths and to understand that our truths are often not the truth and the ability to stay optimistic through it all. These things are critical and traits that we should all be looking for and uh, valuing. Yeah. So let's say I'm an HR professional working in a company environment, or I'm even a people manager, you know, managing a team of a team of folks. And I, I'm really connecting with what you're saying here. I, I agree. Having optimistic employees is what I'd love. I'd love to have a, a whole company full of people who are optimistic and resilient, but I don't because that's not the nature of a lot of people in this world. So what can I do about it? Can I train people to be optimistic? What would you recommend there? Can you train them? Yes, but not the way we typically think about training from a human resources perspective. Mm -hmm. The way we can train people to be optimistic and resilient is to model that behavior first and foremost. And we should be modeling that behavior individually, but also as an organization. We should be valuing adaptability more than strength. Strength is important as well, but adaptability is more important. And a lot of this starts with vulnerability. If we want to have cultures that promote this kind of thinking, this kind of of resilience, adaptability, and optimism, it starts with with vulnerability. We have to model that. What I just did for you when, when I just explained that I have an inoperable brain tumor. Do you know how terrified I used to be to, to say that? I thought it diminished me. I thought that if I ever left my law firm, no one would ever want me because they'd be worried that I'm going to die or I'm going to go blind, which is a, another symptom of, of this particular type of tumor that I have. And I used to hide it. And what I've realized over time is that's not authentic. And it was important for me to embrace my own vulnerability and that it wouldn't diminish me. And in fact, I actually think it makes me stronger. And I think that it makes me more authentic and more credible. And that's the, that's the model that I want others in my organization to see. And so I think we can do that. But I think also as leaders, we need to also just promote honesty and um, when we are in, in difficult times, as we have been for the last year, we need to be honest about it. If we really want to promote resiliency, we have to be able to look at, at the current situation with brutal honesty and candor and accept how bad it really is. We just also have to have hope for the long-term future. And this paradox, this concept of the only way we can really get by during these difficult times is to be honest about how, how bad things are and not try to sugarcoat it. Embrace that. Again, it's another form of vulnerability. Just also have this long-term hope, this optimism that we're going to be okay. That's wonderful, Michael. Well, I have to say, it's not often we have a guest on All Things Work who's frankly inspirational, oh. <laughs> but I think you are. And well, thank you. I think people listening to this are going to feel like, especially given the, the period that we've been in, as you've said, and any last words on, on guiding folks who are struggling personally with remaining optimistic in the face of 
whether it's disease or, or financial insecurity or whatever it might be. And any thoughts? I'd like to, uh, I'd like to, to emphasize what I just, what I just said a moment ago. Um, we should always be honest about our circumstances and sometimes our circumstances are just, are just really bad. And we've all been through a lot this, this past year and we have to be honest about that. And I think that the American culture in particular, the American corporate culture has emphasized this idea of being strong leaders and we've got to steer our ships and be strong and be confident. And I think that's important. I certainly don't think panicking is, is a good idea. I think the whole world needs a lot more a lot more acceptance of, of, of vulnerability, which in my opinion is the key to authenticity. And I think that's something we should all be focused on. Let's just all acknowledge the reality. But let's also take this, this opportunity to explore our, our values. And I think this is important for an HR audience. We all talk about values. I talk about our values at, at the Colony Group all the time. I talked about values at the National Brain Tumor Society, these organizations that are so dear to me. But when we talk about values, we often talk about, frankly, prescriptive values. And what I mean by that are we talk about values that sound really good, and I think at times of stress that we're all feeling, it's a time to reflect on what our real values are. Are the values that we talk about merely prescriptive values that we think sound good and we like to prescribe for our companies and organizations? Or instead, are they truly descriptive values that actually reflect the reality? And I'd submit to you, Tony, that if you think about the year we've had, just look back on how you responded personally to this year. Look back at how your company responded personally. And I'm talking not only, again, about the, the coronavirus pandemic, but also social injustice and just all the stress. Think about the political strife, whichever side you're on we've had. How did you respond? How did your organization respond? And are you comfortable with that answer? Because I think that our actual values were very much on display. The way we acted during this, these past 12 months really reflect our actual values, our descriptive values. Well, thank you, Michael. And that is going to do it for today's episode of All Things Work. A huge thank you to Michael Nathanson for joining me to discuss workplace resilience, uh, values, and, and optimism, a wonderful topic. Before we get out of here, I want to encourage everyone to follow and subscribe to the All Things Work podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. And while you're at it, be sure to give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Also, be sure to check out SHRM on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And you can find all of our episodes on our website at SHRM.org slash ATW podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on All Things Work.